the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with today's episode, we just wanted to mention we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider throwing us a buck a month to help support the show and the work we're doing. Today, Taylor and I, in kind of preparation, I think, broadly for further discussions of not only Anti-Oedipus and other Deleuze and Guattari works that we're going to be looking at, throughout the course of the podcast, we want to take a little step back and go through a little bit of Freud that I think will pay off in our discussions of, of anti-Oedipus at minimum, but also as we continue to explore Lacan seminars and discuss Lacan's ideas, obviously those are being built off Freud. So this will be, you know, we think this will pay dividends to anyone that's kind of following along in the readings with us on, on any of those projects or just if you love Freud. So and Taylor, these are some of your favorite. You're a big Freud fan, correct? It's so it's so interesting if you'd ask me that. <laughs> if you'd ask me that maybe five, six years ago, especially like 10 years ago, I would have been like, you know, I would have been more or less indifferent. Uh, neither neither hating Interesting. Freud nor I would have, I, you know, I would have had read Anti-Oedipus enough times to be like, you know, on the one hand, fuck Freud, all my homies hate Freud. <laughs> but on the other hand, kind of knowing at the same time that Deleuze and Guattari give Freud credit, you know, right. where, where it's due, you know, there's, there are, you know, when you, when you read them today, obviously, like any other thinker, you want to have a, a kind of a critical eye, but at the same time, you, you know, I do feel like coming to his text with a certain amount of charity, a charitableness, I think it really pays off. And even though these essays aren't cited in Anti-Oedipus, or at least not in the next chapter, which is really, chapter two is really the, the Freud psychoanalysis chapter, where they'll go deep. And, and so the next text we're going to do, like the case history is the Wolfman, Ratman, his papers on neurosis and psychosis, the dissolution of the Oedipus complex, probably have little sections of totem and taboo we want to look at, which will set up chapter three when they look at anthropology and ethnology and stuff. And then I think the last Freud reference or one of the last Freud references they make is uh, his book on group psychology. Because one of the things Freud doesn't do and what we see Guattari try to fill in the gaps of is group psychology. So the, his little book on group psychology is one of the few places where he explicitly is going to try to tackle that, that issue. Um, you know, he was thinking more towards the end of his life about these broader questions of, of the social. So you see that like in civilization, it's discontents. 
Moses and monotheism, future and illusion. You know, he is thinking broad, more, more broadly than what he's most familiar with, which is a kind of, you know, which is the neurotic seated on a couch, you know, and he's kind of got the suspended attention just trying to, you know, it's, it's that one-on-one analytic, classical analytic situation. But yeah, these three essays, even if they aren't taken up in chapter two of Anti-Oedipus, I really do think they give some broad uh, strokes of the Freudian theory, especially when it uh, relates to not just drives, but also to the to the functioning of the psychical apparatus, to sort of what's going on with, um, you know, obviously repression and negation symbolically, right? So the three essays we're going to do today is Instincts and Their Vicissitudes, which is 1915, Repression, which is also 1915, and Negation, which is 1925. It's a later paper. What's also nice about this, not just to set up anti-Oedipus or some of the, at least the Freudian, covering some of our Freudian bases and getting some of the language down, you know, it's, it's what's really great about at least these two essays, you know, and negation as well, is that they, they come right after his reflections on narcissism, right, which we just recorded about. So we will see that already, you know, we're, we're kind of following, even if it's circuitous, we're, we're following a kind of logical progression and we're getting to build off of some of the work that we've, we've done previously. And last but not least, the, what's interesting about the repression essay is in seminar one, John Hippolyte is attending the Lacan seminars and there's a he gives a talk about the uh, repression essay and no, I think he gives a talk about the, sorry. I think he gives a talk on Verneinung. I think he gives a talk on the negation essay. Fuck. I, I'm having a senior moment. I have to <laughs> recheck it, but in Leotard's discourse figure, <clears throat> which is also talked about in anti-Oedipus, they say it's like the first real book to tackle a critique of, the signifier in discourse figure Leotard at the end translates repression and he will discuss repression that essay. So there's kind of cool little links to Lacan to Leotard with some of the stuff we're doing today. And then the instincts in the vicissitude essay, I just think even for the sort of middle to end part where he gets into this question of ambivalence of love and hate and this question of, you know, he's building off the narcissism essay, obviously, and he's, you know, he's talking about sadomasochism as sort of a developmental stage in our sexuality and always sort of in the background, Um, just for the definition, just for the definition that he gives of the components, the four components of drive, that alone is like really helpful for uh, making these things more concrete. That's kind of the reasons why I thought, hey, let's let's get down and dirty, right? With with the Freud. You yourself said that you, you seem to you seem to enjoy these these essays. So Yeah. Um I think it's an interesting kind of like uh I don't know, it it sort of go even though there is this pop Freudianism that sort of pervades our culture, a lot of the takes, I think this I don't know, the psychoanalytic readings feel like 
they oftentimes seem to contradict the kind of commonsensical models of um of the con- of consciousness or the intellect or or even subjectivity i think which is sort of what's sort of most illustrative or most interesting to me is kind of looking how you know freud is kind of starting with darwin and working from there and then kind of building on darwin in a in a sense but he's you know taking it a little bit further with the kind of theatrical model of the unconscious right with that right. etc that is um you know that's obviously criticized later but i mean you have to hand it to freud for you know what i mean there has to be this germ of the idea first of the of the yeah. whole idea of psychoanalysis to begin with that was kind of one of the interesting little asides and in the instincts and their vicissitudes reading was how he kind of starts out by prefacing you know his sort of approach to science or yes. at least a type of, a kind of science in the way that he it's like sort of cataloging and describing things at first and kind of his very self-aware materialist approach to like saying hey first of all before you can really do you know develop a science there has to be you know you have to have some sort of categories there has to be like some vocabulary create you know what i mean there's got to be some concepts right that are, that are laying out and right. those concepts need to be flexible and indefinite. Right. And, exactly. And they need to be constantly in contact with, with observational, right. empirical exactly. material. Yeah. Right. You know, we talked a little bit about it on, in the on Narcissism essay where he stated some of this stuff. Yeah. But you're right. There is something interesting about Freud talking about we the concepts that we sort of are forced to bring and we impose on the material through the, you know, they're just conventions. Right. And they need to be in that constant dialogue with observation and be able to be, you know, you need to have that kind of feedback, that, that dialectic of reworking them and refining them. And they should never be taken axiomatically. You mentioned the pop psychology stuff. And I know that towards the end of his life, he was becoming a, more dogmatic, even if he already had that authoritarian streak. And we've, we've talked about this and um, such that the Oedipus complex becomes the universal matrix for sort of describing man's development ontogenetically, phylogenetically, whatever. We're sort of doomed to that fate. We see in a lot of the Freud that we're trying to read and to gear us up to tackle anti-Oedipus is we want to see in a certain way, what leads Freud to this conclusion, which he finds to be inevitable, and to show that there is a flexible side to him. And if we just reduce Freud to, to Oedipus, there, you know, you're kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? right? Oedipus needs to be critiqued, and we're going to obviously go into that and do that. And, and Deleuze and Guattari are going to ask very pointed, very specific questions and impose specific problems and show what's problematic in Freud, we'll get a lot more out of it. And it'll be a lot more fruitful engagement if we can not necessarily defend Freud, but but be able to articulate him in his own words right. without distorting him, right? Yeah. Because that's not- Really what, providing the yeah. right contextualization yes. for his work rather than, I think, looking back on his career with the the hindsight of history that's 2020, right? Right, right. Um, and- but I also think that Deleuze and Guattari, obviously, like they're picking up on, you know, this kind of through line too of 
this kind of materialist approach to psychoanalysis that he at least talks about is something that Deleuze and Guattari pick up and and run with that. Yes, you know they and you can see a lot of different areas like that where they're sort of taking inspiration from Freud's work. I'm not sure if it's in chapter one or if it's in the last chapter. One of the little sections in one of the chapters is called a materialist psychiatry. Right. Right. And so I, and I do think that, that if we, if we strip away some of the, some of the places that Freud strays into the speculative too far or strays into idealism uh, and, and we're able to, to be, you know, to use not just like a, like a butcher's ax, but use a scalpel and scalpel away some of the, whether it be the ideology of the times, right, or just the scientific imagery that he relies on sometimes. If we can just kind of just sort of peel back some of that, um, we do see that that he, I mean, he is rightfully known to, I think, you, you mentioned Darwin, right? I mean, Darwin kind of dislodged our... Right, yeah, it's kind of a our, paradigm shift. Right, a paradigm shift, dis- dislodging, decentering the human from the whether it be the apex of the you know of the food chain or the apex of the chain of being, right? So decentering man, Freud too decenters man in a, yeah. in a different way, right? right? Because by by decentering consciousness as the equivalent of thinking, by showing that the unconscious has to be dealt with and tackled with, that by not doing so, philosophy kind of sweeps under the rug the problematic well one could say it, it, it tries to ensure being equals thinking right this is kind of what we talked about last week with with Isabel Millar when we were discussing psychoanalysis and artificial intelligence where there is this prejudice in philosophy about being equals thinking right that comes all the way back to Parmenides at least and Lacan and Freud too right with this anti-philosophical approach to, to what is thinking, you know, we decenter the ego or the, or the subject, however you want to put it from, from centrality and the unconscious, you know, becomes this new domain to explore. And for Freud, you know, in the best of cases, what we want to do is proceed scientifically, even if psychoanalysis may never be a science, it can pot. We, we have to think about what, science could be and would be if psychoanalysis was included among its um, endeavors. Does that make sense? Yeah. To sort of contextualize Darwin and Freud, Origin of Species comes out in 1859. I don't remember exactly when Freud was in, started medical school, but it was what I mean? What eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies? I think the late. You can pull up uh, the Wikipedia page. I don't mind, but I do think he starts studying with Char with Charcot, doing his studies of uh, his medical studies, but also his um, studies of hypnosis. I believe that's in the late, mid to late eighteen seventies uh, and eighteen eighties that he's really doing that, and he's only starting to write. His first earliest papers are in the, the 1890s, and it's really 1895. That's a pivotal year. That's when he co-authors studies on hysteria, and he 
writes this really ambitious kind of scientific way of describing nervous energy and stimuli. That's it's usually just called the postscript. That's not published until 1950, though, after his death. It shows that 1895 is this banger year for him. And mm-hmm. then, of course, even though it was published in 1899, its publication date is 1900, which is Interpretation of Dreams, which he's most famous for, or at least which sedimented his celebrity, if you will. And one of the reasons why it was its publication date is 1900 is because it is meant to be seen as like this, you know, it is this initial stamping of the 20th century right with with the freudian um this new freudian marker if you will of of psychoanalysis that that the year the 20th century will be known as you know a psychoanalytics century if we can make that joke right that <laughs> i don't know if you've heard the joke that foucault made yeah yeah, yeah about the 21st century yeah we'll we'll look back oh well no it was, it was the 20th he said that the 20th we would look back and it would be known as delusian which you know, if you take that too seriously, you might get a little triggered, but it's, I think it was meant lovingly and jokingly. It says 1885 is when okay. Freud went to Paris to study with Charcot. And he may have already begun his medical studies. So, uh, but yeah, so, so it's, it's what, 30, really 30, 40 years later that Freud, I think with the interpretation of dreams and the importance that dream life has, you know, we, we see that next quote unquote Copernican revolution or whatever you want to, you know, call it. Isabel called it a, you know, with Keplerian. A, yeah. A couple, well, that Keplerian. was more for, that was for Lacan specifically. That, well, they, yeah, that's, that's Lacan's point. You know, Lacan makes that, that point in seminar 20. You're right to instincts in their vicissitudes starts with this interesting description of how science proceeds and i do think that this shows that freud at least at this time is both thinking about how to proceed scientifically but also how to keep oneself honest right and not to pretend that we all, we have all the answers and freud as much as we think of him as dogmatic and authoritarian he he is constantly kind of revising his uh his thinking sometimes we have to Keep in mind the different sort of eras, if you will, of Freud and think about, you know, these, these different transitions between works and how, how, how some of these concepts subtly change as he's rethinking these things. And in light of even world events, right, we have to think that on narcissism and these, at least these two essays, Instincts and Repression, are written at the very right as World War I is getting underway, right? And we have to think that there's something to it, if you will. This is one of the pivotal moments in Freud's chronology. One of the first things he brings up in Instincts and Their Vicissitudes is this sort of dichotomy or comparison to discussion of instinct versus stimulus. Yes. Kind of setting up, setting those things in opposition or like clarifying or. Yeah, he wants to, well, first he wants to say that a, drive and and we've already talked about this i'll be really quick you know uh, trebe is normally now translated as drive but we're working with the standard edition and so if we say instinct or drive interchangeably that's just i prefer the the translation drive for trebe it's instinct there is another word in german 
you know, for that instinct. So we, if we use that, that term instinct, we have to really be clear that Freud is not talking about instinct found in other animals. In fact, he'll right. say that they're, they're, one can't really talk about instinct for humans, right? I mean, and the way that the example he gives is a baby bird coming to the edge of a tree limb, right, has an instinct that there is something called gravity in it and it's not ready to fly and it, and, and it keeps it alive, right? I mean, a, a, young, a young human baby on, on, at a cliff edge wouldn't have that right. yeah, yeah. built, even though there are self-preservative drives, self-preservative instincts, there is no instinct in that sense, in the sense of, you know, zoology and, and other forms of life. So, so you already have it right here. An instinct is a stimulus applied to the mind and it's, and it sources an organ, right? It's, it's internal. Whereas, you know, there is a difference from external stimuli, right? A bright light or um, a source of heat, whatever, coming from the external world, we have mechanisms for avoiding that. We flee. He uses that term. Yeah, flight. fight or flight, of course. Right. And the best we can do with internal stimuli, with drive, with instinct, is um, is fight it, <laughs> right? Which is why we have mechanisms of repression, repression. and, yeah. you know, and these Negation other forms of, right, this is a point that Freud will hit upon over and over in this essay and elsewhere too. this notion that flight doesn't work flight. You can't flee from right. the organs. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, <laughs> you, you can't, can't flee from, well, I guess you can flee from consciousness in a sense, right? Via True. Drugs, but right. Not- right. Yes, that's right. It's, that's one of the means to, to do so. Right. Yeah. Cause he does drugs. say like there's, he mentioned something about pain or something and there's only toxic, whatever yes. treatments can allay that or whatever. I right. Remember the specific language. No, 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 but it, that, that's exactly it. That there are narcotics, analgesics, you know, there are obviously, you know, uh, ways of modifying pain and unpleasure and these other things, but that doesn't deal with the root of the, the stimulus, right. Which, you know, and while we're at it, I mean, I think that that's perhaps, to define instinct or define tree, define drive in French, it's called pulsion, which I think is a, yeah, I think that word really works word. really well too. Right. Maybe even better than drive yeah. pulsion. Yeah, you know, we have, right. we have that from, from Latin, right? We have expulsion and repulsion right. impulsion and, and stuff like that. So pulsion is a great translation of tree and we should maybe define the four aspects First of all, you have pressure. That's the like essence of drive, as he as he wants to say it, right? You've got in German it's strong, right? Pressure in French, I believe it's la poussée, right? It's it's literally like a pushing. It is a, a measure of of work, if you will. It, it I mean he he describes it in terms of really like in terms of physics. So that's the first essential um, point about drive is that it's pressure. It is a, it is a motor force. It can be quantified. He'll even want to say, and that was his early dream as to was to kind of scientifically sort of measure the amount, the demand for work that the drive represents in terms of its pressure. And he will say that 
pressure is always an active force. It's always an activity. There are no passive drives, he wants to say. The only way that we can describe drive in terms of passivity would be an aim, which we can talk about next, right? That the aim for drive is what he calls satisfaction. In German, I believe it's Befriedigung. In French, it's Apaisman, which we have we have an old word for it, but it's, it's literally uh, that word um, in that French word is, is the word for peace, because that's, that's how you set, that's the aim of, of the drive is to evacuate the tension, uh, the, the stimulus that is building up the pressure, right? We can even think of very simply a, you know, a valve um, releasing steam or uh, venting, you know, the damming up of, of pressure that, that drive accumulates. So we could potentially have passive aims, I suppose, but, or we could describe aims passively or actively, but it, all drives are active in terms of their pressure. Their aim is always satisfaction. It's always a question of evacuating tension. And we do see that Freud will describe satisfaction, if you will, will describe this evacuation of pressure in a number of ways, right? Because on the one hand, the psychical apparatus is seeking to keep pressure either constant, right? At a constant optimum or at a minimum, or Freud says, ideally, if it could, which obviously it can't do to just us existing in reality in the external world and, and the organs, uh, you know, are constantly keeping us alive. And so far as we're alive, this can't, this ideal state can't be reached, but he says, ideally the psychical apparatus would evacuate all tension, all pressure, right? And that's what he calls in beyond the pleasure principle, the, the Nirvana principle, right? That there is some, there is this like ideal tendency that obviously can't be reached this absolute point of, of total evacuation of pressure. And I think that that is kind of an asymptote. There's, there's always an, an, an asymptote, right? That you, you, you never, you never reach that, uh, that ideal. And, and as long as we're, you know, still alive. So that's, that's the aim. And the object is the third part of drive, it is the sort of the vehicle, the medium, the conduit of that through which or by way of which pressure gets evacuated, right, from the psychical apparatus. So the object is completely arbitrary, except that for Freud, he, he too wants us to think about that in terms of our, the development of our um, not just our psychical apparatus, but our sexual history, we may have proclivities for certain objects that either were more expedient in uh, releasing that pressure or just we, we become, as he says, we, we kind of fixate on, on objects. Um, obviously, the, the, the primordial fixation is on the mother's breast, right, on that partial object, mm -hmm. which, you know, produces a satisfaction of the drive of hunger and thirst, Right, keeping us alive in the self-preservative sense. But for Freud, you know, it's interesting this because the question of object becomes, well, how many fixations, right? We may have like a favorite, favorite object, whether it be the pacifier, which literally is a great name for it because it is 
satisfying that that oral drive pacifying yeah mm-hmm. that's right it's pacifying the the mother's breast the mouth yeah the mouth. right and sucking machine that's, that's right yeah and he says that an object can satisfy a confluence of drives right it's not just one drive per object so that's something interesting that he he notes kind of being able to to take out you know many birds with one stone and I think for Freud, economically, we want to, he wants to ask what psychogenetically in the development of sexuality and, and the psychical apparatus, what determines attachment, mm-hmm. what impedes detachment from objects, which is important for understanding right. like the logic of the fetish. And yeah. we, we could even say in a Leotardian sense, what impedes movement on the band? Yeah. Right. Because, it, you know, in terms of, Fixation would be kind of the band slowing down in terms of the the world of objects uh, for for the psyche. So that's something interesting about the the object, and it is that through which the aim is able to to get movement. Right. Lastly, is the source, and the source is always represented by a drive. Right. So the drive is a representative of source, which for Freud is biological, you know, whether it be an organ or sort of a system of organs. And this is why the source is sort of beyond the purview of psychology or psychoanalysis, properly speaking. And it's, you know, it's biology or the life sciences goal or role to help shed light on that. And the best we can do is sort of uh, entertain speculative um, notions about the source of of drives. Those are the four: you know, pressure, aim, object, source. And I would just say, as we go along, you know, Freud will use the term satisfaction in context that sometimes seems like he's merely talking about coming, literally jouissance, and it's not. That's not always the case. We have to be. We have to make sure that we are distinguishing between satisfaction like of of a drive that, versus a need that the, because, yes. like isn't Lacan uh, Lacan says and which I think you said he took from Freud is jouissance is the satisfaction of the drive correct and not a need yes for Lacan he wants to rigorously distinguish enjoyment which may be procured you know, yeah, it's, I guess that's the thing, right? That, that, that there is a question between, you know, needs and then what is satisfied of instinctual demands, right? Because we may, yeah. there, there are drives like thirst and hunger and even the respiratory drive that is satisfying a need that is related to our self-preservative instincts, our self-preservative drives, right, that are demanding, that's literally a need, you know, and, and Freud himself and later in the essay will talk about how we don't use language, the language of love to describe, to describe food or drink, even though maybe that was true at the time, we, we kind of speak loosely about, I love pizza or something like that. You right. Know? So that has changed a little bit in our language, but, you know, he was, he was saying that, you know, strictly speaking, it's more common to say, like, I'm fond of Right. A certain object to satisfy this need of hunger, right? I'm fond of pizza rather than as I opposed love to it. love, right? 
as I said, that's kind of changed a little bit, but you know, his logic still kind of stands because when we say love, we are being metaphorical. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, you know, at least if we, if we follow Freud's logic, but yes, Lacan wants to rigorously distinguish about, about Freud's uh, conceptualization of need and uh, which generally is relating to the self-preservative, the ego drives and uh, or ego libido or whatever. And the sexual aspect, right? The, the sexual drives, which Freud would not want to use the word need. The species might need us to, to feel like we need sex. And because it, that's the lore of pleasure to, to keep us reproducing. Keep the species, keep the species right. Going. And keep right. us, I forget which essay he mentions, but sort of this idea that we, we sort of serve, serve the the somatic wait is it the somatic the somatic germ sort of the basically well we serve we serve the yeah we serve the 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 spermatozoa we we serve the german through our soma but go on yeah that was sort of it on on that sort of note but i think he hits upon that and beyond the pleasure principle most directly yeah but he's already stating it in on narcissism and here a little bit that we are kind of little mannequins or marionettes and, right. and uh, you know, the drives are the, especially Which, the sexual ones that the, the pleasure that's attached to the sexual act is kind of pulling our strings and procreation is, is the, the species is like kind of making a stance to it. Right. I think it's an interesting too, kind of a, maybe ontological thing or idea that Deleuze and Guattari run with in terms of machinic desire or, mm. you know, desiring machines, production, et cetera, right? Because they say that subjectivity or like the components of subjectification are sort of on the periphery and maybe, I don't know, right. I would say drives or whatever the case may be would be at the heart of it. But Their very first example of, of the production of production is giving the example of the mouth machine cutting right. off to a the flow, yeah, right, breaking breast. off a flow from the breast. And you see in these in this definition, beginning with pressure, and aiming even in source sources as as in the organ machines. I mean, Freud is. We could say that this definition, these these four components of drives, is defined machinically yeah. to a certain extent, right? Whether consciously or not. I mean, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Freud is in a certain way he is describing a machinic. Ontology of the drives, maybe, would be a way of, of saying it. Right. Um, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure a better way to, to phrase it. <laughs> Just to back up to object, I thought that there were maybe, there were probably about four passages within instincts that I was like, oh, this is, this feels like this could be sort of this proto objet move okay. that Freud is doing. The object cause of desire. Yes. You know, in, in terms of the in terms of object being one of the components of drive, being that through which the medium through which, let's just say, we'll use the term desire, drive uh, satisfies. You know, uh, releases the tension. You know, I think that for Freud, he may not. It would be interesting to to, to see Freud and Lacan discussing objet a because i think yeah, freud yeah. in his language object as cause of desire might have to be modified in the freudian language i'm not sure if that would fly at least in, in, if we just stick within this essay it would be hard to say that the object causes desire 
you know, it becomes tricky because Lacan is using the word object in a way that I don't think is meant to accord and, exactly and, with and harmonize with this because okay. yeah, um, I wasn't quite sure if that what the if that how tenuous that was, but there's about three or four that I sort of got. Maybe this was at least you could kind of maybe see, or at least I thought maybe this was kind of where Lacan was what he was sort of picking up, you know what I mean? Might've been the little germ that he picked up on and runs with and like develops further. It's hard to say in the, in the four, what causes desire. I think for Freud, he would say that it all starts with, with the pressure, Mm -hmm. right? It's precisely because the pressure builds and there is a demand for work. Okay, so then there an is, object a... has to be selected to direct, to affect into the libidinal intensity towards? Right, or... right, right. It, it, yes, and, and some objects are more suitable than others. We have this whole dialectic of, you know, as he says in the negation essay, you know, primordially, we can even think primordially in terms of phylogenesis, you know, in the, in the just even in lower forms of life leading up to man, it, it's about eating, right? It's about incorporating what, what I don't spit out is, is good. And I keep right. it inside me. I want it inside me. That produces pleasure. What I spit out is harmful. It's bad. So in that sense, there are objects that are more expedient and that we're more fond of and that accord more with our pleasure, you know? And so in that sense, with fixation and, and this logic of fixation that we just talked about, you know, we could correlate a little bit the, the object ah, as cause of desire more so but it's hard to see in the mechanisms, the four components of drive, which one is causing it. Cause you could say, well, it's yeah. pressure, but for Freud too, on the other hand, you don't have pressure in terms of drive without the workings of, of the organs, without the source of the drive, right? You can't really talk about what causes the pressure at all, unless you have these sources. Gotcha. So, you know, it's, if I read through these couple of passages, would that be, Please would do. you, would you take that journey with me and kind of see maybe how crazy I am or if let's, I, how, how much to... of a reach this is, we could say, um, so for one, and he references specifically, you know, the object, I'm guessing that's the German based on the spelling, the object, uh, object. object of an instinct <laughs> is the thing in regard to which or through which the instinct is able to achieve its aim. Then moving further down. The object is not necessarily something extraneous. It may equally well be part of a subject's own body. So, which I thought was, okay, that's sort of, you know, obviously object, right? That's a pretty literal link. That's neither here nor there. I think some of the other passages that I'll read, I think, draw this out a little bit clearer. Okay, so yeah. And I think you even read this too, just kind of just picking up in, in, in the midst of it change any of number of times in the course of the vicissitudes which the instinct undergoes during its existence and highly important parts are played by the displacement of instincts. It may happen that the same object serves for the satisfaction of several instincts simultaneously, a phenomenon which Adler has called the confluence of instincts. Yeah. Okay. So you did mention that. But it, it, it's, it's important. It's important to, to note that it's, we could think for example, about, I mean, I, I think with like Deleuze and Guattari, if we're looking forward, you know, they, with their argument about sexuality and, and, that, and, and sociality and that instinct drives don't need to be sublimated, right? Libido doesn't need to be sublimated, desexualized to uh, plug into the socius. We can think of, you know, the narrator in, in Proust's novel, Biting into the Madeline, 
that that may be satisfying not just a drive for hunger and a drive for for taste but through the the confluence of memories it's also always already imbued with satisfying at least in part a kind of sexual drive that's that's pervading so yeah i mean you know we we can imagine these things we can also imagine if you want to get outside of the sexual and think of the drive of thirst and the drive of hunger, like drinking a milkshake or a protein shake can obviously satisfy both. That's very like sort of easy to think about. Yeah. I guess maybe this object ah stuff wasn't as. No, it's important. I think it's important. I think it's important to, to, to be. It thinking. Wasn't quite, <laughs> it's not hitting as hard on uh upon like a further <laughs> investigation than it did when I was initially reading it, I think. It would just be interesting to, because in this whole meditation on drive, on instinct, Freud doesn't really use the language of causality so much. When Lacan is talking about the object cause of desire, that works very well within the framework of imaginary identifications and the, the tripartite, which Freud at the end of this essay will have his own trifecta, which we can talk about. But I don't think it's... um. I don't think it's out of place to ask that question. It's it's just that the Lacan is obviously like you know repurposed right this notion in in a way that I think is um, you know because anyway it would just be a question of of modulating Freud's language and that's why it'd be it'd be fascinating to think of a dialogue between Freud and yeah. Lacan along this note before we you know, move forward in the essay. There's another section or that I wanted to mention in the context of, I guess, surplus jouissance. Okay. That kind of rang a bell for me. That's the original reality ego, which distinguished internal and external by a means of sound objective criterion changes into a purified pleasure ego, which places the characteristic of pleasure above all others. For the pleasure ego, the external world is divided into a part that is pleasurable which has incorporated into itself and a remainder that is extraneous to us. So that remainder is kind of where I was thinking like, oh, is this, is this perhaps like a surplus jouissance right. that Lacan theorizes later on? You know, um, this is interesting because it is, I think that this is where y- you would start to bring Freud and Lacan right. a little closer. And one of that would be sort of what underlies the dialectic that, leads to fantasy in the terms of, um, you know, the development of the unconscious and the development of the sexual drives as we, as the young child begins to grow and go through the different stages, the oral, anal, latent, genital, and there's the phallic in there somewhere, right? You know, all the different stages that Freud comes up with later. So this, this question of fantasy life sort of he wants to try to locate some of that back in the uh, sort of the phylogenetic dawn of, of the species too, right? With this understanding of what we incorporate, what, what tastes good, what agrees with us in terms of our, our taste, right? And, and it could be more, it could be broader than just eating, but eating is the, is the function that Freud uses because it's the simplest to grasp. Right. Uh, we, 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 we keep in, we incorporate, we want, and it gives us pleasure. And then right. what we spit out is harmful to us. And that, that good, bad 
object that the client will really work through and spend a lot of time meditating on. You know, we see some of that with Freud and, and then we can see how in this dialectic of, of, a, of an original reality ego, which is initially, you know, the baby. And, and it, again, Isabel Millar went, went through this very, very well, which, you know, this question of the, the sort of polymorphously perverse baby that's, you know, that's crying out because it's helpless and it needs, it needs a caregiver to, to satisfy its, the tension that it's feeling, the pressure that, that's building within itself you know, we can kind of see that that's the initial reality ego. And, you know, for Freud, there is this dialectic where we possibly could skip the stage of, you know, developing this pleasure ego and go to a finalized reality ego if we didn't have this protracted state of helplessness, right? We know that it's like we came out of the womb too quickly, right? We, we, we come pre-cooked, we come out pre-cooked and unlike many other animals that are able to more or less quickly, you know, we're not the only animals that, that need parents to, to help us along the way, but obviously we're the ones that need them longest and most that's, that's again, goes, goes back to why instinct is not a good translation of tree because if we were cooked a little bit more, if we had instincts, we could, pop out of the womb and more or less be able to, uh, to already to distinguish that the stove is hot. Don't touch it. Right. Like we would have built in stress. Let's say, let's say we'd have, we'd have a dialectic of stress and under and recognize danger and these other things, which yeah. we don't, right. We, we have to, I, we have yeah. to learn it. That's kind of interesting in the context, you know, we had been talking a little bit about Dune and I think the figure and specifically in the first novel, Dune, is the sister, Alia, is born as basically like this. So she really doesn't need, I mean, in terms of perhaps physically, she would require assistance. But like in terms of psychical development is already right. like a fully, fully realized being like there's no there's no developmental process that really is necessary. There's no mirror phase. You know what I mean? Where the subject kind of, the subject is already is preborn already. Yeah. Hundred percent fully developed, and she's an old soul, or something. Yeah, like yeah, that, literally. Right? We have we have weird ways. Of, yeah, she's wise beyond her years. We yeah, have all these exactly these kind of interesting ways of putting which it. Is, yeah, which is also considered an abomination for some of these groups in in the novels. But you know, focus I mean, too you, much you, on you that. Were, you were saying something to me about how one of the prohibitions is the development of artificial intelligence or right. machine intelligence, right? Yeah, exactly. In this society and. So is there something that we, one could say there's something uncanny about this child? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Comes oh, that's out good. pre-programmed. Right. Um, and that would be another way of defining instinct. I mean, in, in German, Freud uses the term. It comes up several times in the Freudian corpus, but he, it's literally the German word is instinct with a K, right? That's straight out of Latin. And it is, if I have my notebook, I could quote it exactly, but it is basically a genetic program that's that's sort of inherited through the development of the species it's it's like hereditarily passed down and it mm-hmm. is sort of encoded in in the species in its in its development and relation to the milieu and, and whatnot so as i said the 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 example is the baby bird already has this kind of pre-program that 
like gravity is, is bad and, and yeah. harmful, whereas the, the infant would not. We already discussed too, like the four vicissitudes, correct? Or I wouldn't call those the vicissitudes. He, okay. uh, the, the, just like, like the components or the aspects, I, there's not a great word for it, but if we can break down drive into its, into its factors, if you will, into sort of what makes drive drive, then yeah, we went through that, right? Pressure, aim, object, source. Gotcha. Yeah. What do you think would be more productive to discuss like this whole narcissism, its relationship to sadism and masochism, et cetera, or this sort of chart that deals with the looking, like being seen, I would looking love to at, etc. I, I think I would be, we, we could go into some the of The looking, that. yeah. The, yeah, because this, I, I would be really quick with the sadomasochism stuff. You know, here, at least in this essay, the, the point I think for him is to understand what he calls ambivalence, which isn't a great word as Lacan says for it, that, that he, he proposes the portmanteau word, uh, uh, hain admiration, which is, you know, a kind of Latinate French juxtaposition of the word for hate and love. Spinoza gives a good definition of it in the ethics when he talks about a fluctuation or oscillation of the soul. And he talks about, he, he uses almost Freudian language to talk about when we have mentally, when we have these associations with something that we love or that something that gives us pleasure and it gets linked onto that which we hate or that which brings us unpleasure, that which causes us pain. And so once what we love becomes associated also with something negative, we have, whenever we have that <clears throat> encounter, again, we vacillate between love and hate, right? They, they come together now and it's sort of like a, like a taint, if you will. And Freud gives kind of a similar thing, you know, with a loving relationship and there's a breakup, blah, 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 you know, love gets not necessarily just overwritten with hate, but that there is this kind of oscillation. Literally, there's a there's two values attached to it. Um, that's literally ambivalence and sort of there's this back and forth, you know, and for him, the father figure is one of the primordial like objects, if you will, the of ambivalence. And so to the analyst, right, with, through the transference, you know, and the analyst doesn't return that, that love immediately. And so you can see as we get closer and closer to the kernel of the symptoms, more and more uh, resistance gets projected towards the figure of the analyst. And so you will see this intense, this intensely cathected, invested relationship on the part of the analysis can easily switch from love to hate as the analysis progresses. And that's just part of the that's just part of the transference, right? I was even thinking too, like this, I like what he says here. Here too, it can be hardly doubted that the active aim appears before the passive, that looking precedes being looked at, which I think is right. really important, Justin, and kind of goes to maybe the mirror stage. It was kind of what I was thinking too. And, right, yeah. You know, this, this was just a little, but I think really here when he gets into the sort of, it almost reminded me too of uh, Lacan's graph of sexuation, just perhaps maybe just in the sense that there was like these kind of four quadrants or, or, or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. So we have on the left-hand side, one 
self looking at a sexual organ. That's the active. Uh, okay, yeah, active and a, passive are two little. Uh, right. And then a sexual organ being looked at by oneself. That's interesting that he literally just grammatically phrases it passively. Right. <laughs> and then oneself looking at an extraneous object, which he calls active scopophilia, which I fascinating term. And then an object which is one's self or part of oneself being looked at by an extraneous person. And that's exhibitionism. So you see on in the sexual sense, you've got voyeurism, which I think is better than scopophilia, right? It might, at least it's more. Yeah, current. I think in the context of this essay, well, I would agree. It's just we don't we don't use scopophilia. That's just a term that doesn't really mean anything to, to everyday people. But we, we use the term voyeurism. It's even a genre of pornography. Right. Uh, so is exhibitionism. Yeah. Right. And those two kind of go together in the active and the passive. Now, since we've talked about Lacan a little bit, what's fascinating about Sartre and Lacan when they describe the gaze is, you know, for Sartre, and I love this example he gives. Sartre gives the example of spying through a keyhole or like a peephole and we're sort of, you know, we're spying. And then suddenly we get looked at. Once we get looked at, we're hailed as a subject and, and, and something, you know, there's, yeah, there's anxiety changes. and it's like, ah, you know, you become a subject, right, right, you right. become an object <laughs> for someone else. Yeah. Yeah. And Lacan takes from this and something that's not necessarily, it, it's not directly explicated here, but it may be implied but for Lacan, it's there is this additional step where we make ourselves become seen by the other, and there's something fascinating about that for Lacan. Yeah, that's 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 for him the, where he'll take the gaze, uh, making oneself be seen is not it's not just exhibitionism, but it's exhibitionism plus a, a kind of an additional factor, an additional means of of drawing in the other right because just because we moon somebody or whatever doesn't mean that we necessarily make ourselves seen there's something of there's something of a for initial force that's additional uh, magnetic force if you will that's 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 added to it in in that aspect of the gaze he has here to you this is the last quote i pulled from instincts was we may sum up by saying that these essential feature and vicissitudes undergone by instincts lies in the subjection of the instinctual impulses to the influences of the three polarities that dominate mental life. Of these three polarities, we might describe that of activity, passivity as the biological, that of ego, external worlds as the real, and finally that of pleasure, unpleasure as the economic polarity. Can you predict what, <laughs> what I'm going to say? Is this obviously talk about like, Leotard a little bit or? Uh, oh, I wasn't. No, I wasn't even thinking well, about that. Go but ahead, that, go, that go I think that maybe you're right as far as. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I see what you're saying in terms of unpleasure and pleasure in economics. But I think before that, it just reminded me of sort of RSI for Lacan. Yes. Yes. I, you know, real I, symbolic imaginary for. And, and again, that, and again, these don't fully overlap right but right. We, but 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 they but they you can kind of see like there's the, a striking similarity there's yes. an rk or like a yeah yeah so it's interesting that activity and passivity as he describes it here is is he wants to say it's chiefly biological that to me is strange 
Right. <laughs> um, a little bit strange. Yeah. Of these, uh, that's the one that made the least sense, I think. Well, you know, I mean, it's For funny me, because it's, he says in terms of the life of the drives, activity and passivity should really be restricted to aims, not to the sources, which is the biological domain. Because so describing that as activity and passivity as biological, you know, it's, I'm not sure if that's, well, if we just take like um, the question of sadomasochism, because Freud wants to make that particularly about activity and passivity, mm-hmm. you know, in, in coldness and cruelty, Deleuze will put this to the test and reveal how masochism takes part in a completely different realm, right? It's based on contract, etc. I won't go into all of that, but I thought it was interesting how he said, or Freud says that hate is first or hate as an older emotion. That's interesting. Uh, what, what were we just talking about? I feel well, like we, we, maybe we I might've, we were just talking about the, 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 the voyeuristic drive and the exhibitionist drive, right? At that for him, the active uh, is, primary and the passive is secondary right so even in the case of the mirror stage you know be being your sort of what Lacan calls it like you know phi prime it's the it's the imaginary it's the mirror image of the ego right that we see first before being seen right it's but 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 I mean it's um it's uh, that for him, I think. Oh is... no, it was Matt. It was, Oh no. Okay. So no, he, it wasn't that it was, he was saying sadism comes first. Like you have to be a sadist right. first before you can become a masochist. Right. Right. And that's part of, that's one of the vicissitudes of the drive is the yeah. turning around on oneself for him. And he'll link this to the anal stage, particularly with aggressivity and these other things. Sadism. Um, yeah. You know, with Lacan, though, when he looks at a linguist like Bonvenist, and he shows that um, personal pronouns are late coming, they're, they're late comers, you know, sh- the shifters understanding the difference between I and you, they're late coming for the child, the child may strike another child, and in describing what happened, will say he hit me, or she hit me, when in reality, they were the subject of the, of the aggression. Um, and, and, you know, for Lacan, this isn't, I mean, we, perhaps this could be linked to what Isabel Millar was talking about a little bit with ordinary psychosis or something, but I'm probably bastardizing the term. But again, it's a very ordinary, that's just how language acquisition works, right? That this distinguishing of... Much like, much like science, right? There's, first there has to be these, right? It's like this primitive movement mm-hmm. to, primitive to complexity. Right. It's... We, like in the ancient theories of vision, the object is, is sending, it's, it's this question. Oh of, yeah. Like particles where, being the sent activity? off. The, yeah. Where's the activity? Where are the rays coming? Is it, right. is it, is it coming from our eyes? Are our eyes sending out rays? And uh, or yeah, is yeah, the yeah. object sending rays out? And of course we know with, with the way the brain works and even having to like automatically, even if it's automatic for us, but in the nervous system, right? Of, yeah, of flipping the flipping, flipping the image, you know, there there is this whole dialectic of the two, right? That there is a kind of... It's kind of know, funny too, like in that mechanistic view of, or like the persistence, not persistence of the image, but just how vision works is mm. light is 
it's everything but one is absorbed by the object, right? Well, I guess not technically, but if like we're saying simple, like if we're looking at a blue shirt, right? All other, everything else is absorbed and only the light, the blue is reflected by light. Right. We think about the same thing with, in terms of the absorption of light, we, we describe that as the function of the color black, right? And the, and white it, is. It's kind of interesting in this kind of ontological way of, I guess, exam, like you mentioned, sort of ancient theories of how vision worked, right? Objects giving off particles versus light bouncing off of objects. <laughs> like this right, third, this right. whole third this thing, third. this third, for, third force or property or whatever the case is. Right. There's, there's always this call mediating, light Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, there, yeah. There's a mediating factor. Yeah. So activity, passivity being biological, you know, it's, I think that that's a catch all term to include the domain of the body. Right. So biological has to be put in scare quotes here. I think if that were true and that's kind of what he is, what he has in mind, then we could potentially relate that apex of the triangle to to the imaginary because the body is the primary sort of means and medium by which Lacan's imaginary is is thought of right having a body and the image of our own body and seeing our own body through the mirror phase and these other things that becomes the principal means of mediating the other's image right through their body and yada 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 so you know um so that could be the imaginary and the strict sense in which Lacan talks about it in, in terms of the sort of the image-based function of the ego and in that realm. So, so yeah, activity and passivity is biological. That's, that's, a, that's a word that has to be complicated. And then what's the second one? That's um, ego, ego, external, external worlds world. as the real. Well, now I, I have to... <laughs> you know, now this is why it doesn't overlap so well. I mean, that's, yeah, that's yeah. interesting here. Ego, if, if this is the. Yeah, because super ego would be more like the symbolic. Yeah. It, ego it would, the would be. Ego yeah. is what the. Okay, so it is. It no, is okay. like the store of. It is it, basically it's it's the drive storehouse. It's. Ego is like the synthesis. Or the different. I, I mean, you could even look at kind of if you're applying that libendal band model you know one side is i guess you have you know it on one side of the band super ego on the other ego is sort of the border or the yeah membrane if you're thinking about a sort of topological uh, viewpoint of the of the psyche or the psychic apparatus it's straddling and and it's and it's complicated this notion that that the the polarity here is ego external world which he calls the real yeah, um, reality in Lacanian terms, because what we know that as he keeps developing, specifically in his later, his second topographical theory, he will modify this a little bit because the ego is not identified with the conscious um, later on. Here it's questionable. Here maybe Freud is wanting the ego to stand in for consciousness, but like a phenomenological consciousness right something like yeah and but but later he will describe part of the ego as being unconscious right and it too through the perceptual system is relating to um the external world so 
here the word ego is doing a lot of work. Yeah. Because it's in, it's open to the external world through the perceptual system that is sort of bombarding it with stimuli. And we have to remember the, the, the way consciousness and the pre-conscious and the unconscious are kind of straddling and working together because when we have thing presentations, external stimuli bombarding us through the perceptual system and consciousness, for Freud, consciousness and memory or perception and memory are totally different registrations, right? That they do not coincide in the same system, right? So I think that here the word ego, again, kind of like the word biological in the, in the activity passivity polarity, mm-hmm. we have to put the word ego in some scare quotes and, and make it a little bit more flexible. If we do that, then we can more closely relate it to the side of the triangle and Lacan's trifecta of the real or quote unquote reality. Because the real for Lacan is not the external world. Right. right? Yeah. You did mention when I brought, was reading this, uh, or after I read this, that what uh, you mentioned libidinal economy. So I'm just curious what, what you were getting at there specifically, although I, I think I'm sort of get it, but. Well, he uses the, he uses the term that pleasure, the pleasure on pleasure series or that polarity is linked to the economic, what he, he defines it as economic. Mm-hmm. And you know, if we, you know, for Freud, libido is specifically like sexual and sexual, sexual okay. impulses. Obviously, in anti-Oedipus, libido with a capital with the capital L is is um, defined as the energy of production of production, right? The connective syntheses, which for Deleuze and Guattari is sexual, um, not you know, but for Freud, right? He since he wants to make these these binary distinctions uh it's interesting here that pleasure and pleasure is economic in the strict sense in which we if we recall the question of pressure right the question of specifically drive this demand for work this demand from the drive upon the organism to modify the external world in such a way that that the drive can satisfy that it can evacuate its uh, the quantity, the what he'll, what he'll call the, the, in other places he'll talk about in terms of quota of affect, right? When we start to get into repression, we'll talk a little bit about that. But it really is this question of if we understand drive quantitatively, we do as well have to realize that certain thresholds of the quantity, whatever unit you want to use, just pressure units, uh, at least you know, in, a, in, a, in, in terms of a representative psychical way, you know, quantitatively, there are thresholds that cross that can build up qualities of, for the stimulus, right? And so, you know. Does that have anything to do with abstract quantities? Well, I do think that, that Freud initially, and he never published this for reasons that were his own. I think that his postscript about a scientific sci- psychology where he's trying to think about you know, the question of physiological stimuli, the question of nervous stimuli, the question of the apparatuses that are the psychical apparatus that's trying to deal with, with excitation. That's the word he would use, right? He's trying to quantify it. Mm-hmm. And I think he abandoned it for reasons that perhaps he would be opening up a Pandora's box with it, but it's still very important for understanding how Freud continues. I mean, he never really abandons it. It's just that he 
probably was a little bit wary about trying to systematize this way of quantifying pressure or quantifying excitation is really the, the word that we should use. When we think about this economic problem, it is this problem of there is a quantitative aspect that, you know, doesn't mean that the buildup of pressure, buildup of excitation doesn't produce qualities or really, I mean, what Deleuze and Guattari want to discuss is, you know, intensive magnitudes, right? I mean, they, they want to talk, when they talk about the, the body without organs, when they talk about desire, they want to talk about intensive magnitudes that, that are always positive in the sense in which they're not like Freud and Lacan and the tradition going all the way back to Plato, having anything to do with lack in, right. in, in a negative sense. So, yeah, I think that that's why he wants to say the pleasure on pleasure is economic because for him, pleasure in terms of the drive is always linked to a lowering of pressure, right? I mean, we can even think about when we have a full bladder, the kind of unpleasure, the kind of displeasure that that brings. And there is a kind of urethral pleasure being able to evacuate the bladder when it's built up to a certain point that... Or the bowels. Or the bowels too, yeah. uh, You know, the it's, these are erogenous zones. These are highly connected erogenous zones, the, the anus, the urethra, right? And so evacuating the bowels or the bladder, that for him is a type of satisfaction. It's satisfying a need and it's linked to pleasure. Whereas unpleasure is a buildup of tension, is a buildup of pressure. So that's why it's economic, right? That, that you, can, you can kind of abstractly, as you said, you can abstractly quantify sort of made up units if you want. Drive, drive units or BWO <laughs> units as, <laughs> as Elizabeth Terry would talk about in, in ATP, right? Um, but yeah, so that's why it's an economic polarity, pleasure and unpleasure. It's, it's about increase and decrease in tension. Obviously with Leotard, we see that, and Freud does... Throughout, in, uh, there's a part in this essay where he, when he starts to talk about sadomasochism, where he will try to qualify what he has said about pleasure is is release of tension, uh, unpleasure is buildup, because he will say in the sexual act in sadomasochism, how is it that pain, this increase in tension, intensity, right, right. Uh, how, how, how is it that it, it can produce pleasure? Right. And we'll see he will modify this even further and beyond a pleasure principle when he will talk about the life and death instincts working in a rhythm rather than just being always sort of at loggerheads they work in a rhythm and so we can think about the Taoist erotics the Chinese erotics that uh Leotard discusses in chapter five of libidinal economy when it is about this keeping this rhythm right of building intensity and not coming, right? You know, um, not not releasing the tension and how that buildup of intensity it, it itself produces pleasure. Freud's not ignorant of that, but I just think that in terms of, he wants to have work conditions for all drives, both sexual and self-preservative and et cetera, right? That's why the pleasure and pleasure series is correlated with release and build up as as good bad as pleasure you know as as pleasurable and unpleasurable but but we know that that's not strictly true it doesn't <laughs> fully work um when we right. focus on the sexual drive it yeah. doesn't work yeah i was trying to figure out how that would go or how that would work with leotard's you know the famous hold me tight and spit on me kind of 
mode of well, the, you made it of the English peasant. Oh, oh, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that that's one of the most quoted parts of liberal economy. Because that's really. more like the that's like the uh, notion of that's kind of like Lacan's notion of jouissance is more like this transgressive element or like a certain formulation, <laughs> like depending on where you look in Lacan. But I think at one point, jouissance is tied to transgression. Yeah. Transgression, right. One of the modes be... of, yeah, one, one of the modes of, one of the paradigms of jouissance, you know, that we, we didn't really discuss it last week with Isabel Millar, but she lays it out. Um, Jacques, Jacqueline Miller tries to differentiate six different periods or paradigms Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, of okay. Jouissance, and one of them being transgression, which I think it's around the time of seminar seven on the ethics of psychoanalysis, if I remember correctly. So that sounds um, vaguely correct, more or less. Right. So, so transgression is is one of, um, you know, and there is something pleasurable. I mean, obviously, there is something to enjoy about, you know, whether it's contrarian or whether it's defying authority or whether we have a simple reading of sod, right? That transgressing laws, boundaries, don't tell me what I can't do, right? There's something enjoyable about that. And part of that is linked to the drive for mastery, right? Of mastering stimuli, but also the strive to uh, struggle, right? The struggle, the struggle to the death of the master and the slave and the, and the recognition, the Hegelian, you know, process of recognition. Man, we really got to do Kant avec sod at some point. I would suggest starting with seminar seven uh, First, because okay. he, he does, he does discuss uh Kant Wasad in seminar seven and he's clearer there. The, gotcha. the, the accree, I wouldn't be Notorious opposed thing. to it, but it's right. a fucking, I mean, what an asshole, right? You know? <laughs> Not that he's the only French right. theorist yeah. <laughs> in the 20th century to be fucking difficult. Um, but even when, re- so, right? even when I'm reading Derrida, I don't feel like, oh, he's just fucking with us. I mean, part of it, he's fucking with us, but he's not just fucking with yeah. us. And, and most, a lot of times I'm reading Lacan, I'm like, God, he's fucking with Yeah, I don't think um, Derrida has the sadism of... No, I don't think so. No, <laughs> he's I, definitely, he's not as libidinally uh, invested yeah, he's, he seems much more of a masochist. So uh, it's almost like he's torturing <laughs> yeah, himself. Right, and yeah, we yeah, get, we get to, totally. We get to play along and, and watch. Yeah, yeah. We get to watch him. You know, when it comes to the puns and the plays on words, I mean, Derrida, there's no, Derrida and Lacan are like. Neck and neck you know, as far as the There's Greeks. no one that, that competes in my mind. Yeah. Because when we talk about notoriously difficult thinkers, whether it be Deleuze or, um, or, or, even more so Guattari, who sometimes, you know, as I call him, he's the mad scientist. Right. They don't really pun. Like, um, not not often. And like I don't Lacan know that Guattari is also, I don't think, is not being purposefully, he's not playing the games either. Right. I do think. At that, least not that, as aggressively as. Right. I think Lacan is definitely the arch sort of trickster in that sense. You know, I, I do think that Deleuze and Guattari, when they are difficult, it's because they understand philosophy to be the creation of concepts. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, so and they're they, trying they, to, yeah, mm-hmm. they're trying to make the concepts that can carry these ideas that don't right. really. And they proliferate um, concepts in ways, especially if you look at a thousand plateaus, with more so that, than anti Oedipus. You know, in anti Oedipus, they will eventually get around to providing working definitions. 
and the ball kind of uh, starts to snowball in a thousand plateaus, you really do have to be nimble and jump from uh, plateau to plateau to connect up the threads of these different concepts that are laid out because they're not holding your hand, right? It, so I think that's that's part of the frustration for writing part of their work where you're like, just give me a fucking glossary, <laughs> stick to one, yeah, you know, definition. Whereas really, it's, right. it is this. There there are these refrains, and we have to you know catch snippets of code from right. from each one, and and we have to try to engineer along with them. But yeah, I mean, with 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 someone like Lacan, we see that he's he's trying to do this too, except that he's working through puns, and I think the puns are are really it's like within language tying knots together right it is uh, it yeah, is nice. it is a topographical type of you know twisting language inside out and and, and yeah, connecting yeah. different lines and uh you know these portmanteau words and stuff and Which obviously honest, you know, everyone knows that i love that shit of course oh well it just met that <laughs> there's in my there's own a, method there is a joy in it, but exactly. But, yeah. but as I would say, it's a to use Lacan's term. There's also a, a hanamoration of it. You know, I I love it, but I also hate it. Right? It's <laughs> you know because it, it is. Um, sometimes we don't want to. Sometimes we don't want just want foreplay. Sometimes we want to <laughs> get to the. Anyway, no. We want to satisfy a drive. <laughs> At a certain point, you want to come. <laughs> it, but that, but I think that that's the interesting thing about. You know whether we call it yin and yang, or to get back to the question of the the sexuation graph, right? Um, with you and I identifying with the masculine side of the graph, you know there is this there's there is seemingly this masculine aspect of sexual drives wanting to eventually come, and that being a denouement and that being a kind of event that ends the act. Whereas right. we know with with females. Yeah. Um, whether we talk about it as being more in touch with the multiplicity of erogenous zones, um, which is only true to a degree, but however you want to say it, you know, we know that they can um, even yeah, one orgasm can last for an hour or more. Um, they've done experiments, but obviously one orgasm doesn't in the act doesn't right. have to. Yeah. And there can be enjoyment gained even without orgasms. Although uh, of course they, they probably want to attach one to it. Um, right. You know, and, and there are feminist theories or theorists that have, that have really critiqued Freud for his assertion um, later in his life when he's talking about female sexuality, where he wants to say that the, that clitoral enjoyment, that clitoral stimulation and clitoral ejaculation, he wants to qualify as premature, right? That once we, once the young lady enters the genital stage, that type of enjoyment should be displaced to the vaginal canal, which any fucking you know, <laughs> physiologist will tell you the difference in the <laughs> density of um, nerve fibers. Right? Of, yeah. Of, of nerve endings. Right. It's not even close. Somatic. So wait, no, that's not somatic. Right. And not all females can have a, um, a vaginal, vaginal orgasm, yeah. Orgasm. I, I'm not including the G spot, right? I'm right. just including the canal. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's not always possible, and so it's weird. It's weird, you know, the the difference between Freud in 1905 and the three essays on sexuality when he's really, in some senses, progressive, or at least he's iconoclastic to 
to the conventional wisdom about sexuality and how we're all perverse, you know, not just in our adult lives, but especially in our childhood lives. And we never leave all of that behind. But this right. later stuff, when he's trying to understand like adult, normal, good sexuality as being located in the genitals and, the, you know, and, and that he loses some of that cutting edge of thinking, thinking perversion as quite normal and quite healthy yeah. uh, to varying degrees, right? You know, that, that it's, he loses that ubiquity and, and, and is trying to think this kind of rigid, rigid universality of these stages we come to. And so at some point we have to get rid of the clitoris and that seems to be a type of castration that he's trying to impose this clitorectomy that he's trying to excise from the theory of sex, of female sexuality. And it's, it's, um, it's just, you know, I mean, think about the, not just the knowledge, but our, our, our whole, the whole, the whole changes we've had, not only towards sexuality, but the knowledge that we've gotten about human sexuality, right. It is one of those last frontiers. And I think that's why Freud didn't get everything right and made some big, pretty big blunders based on certain biases. Maybe that's due to repression, <laughs> right? Maybe that's their, what is it that he's repressing? So yeah, definitely. We we'll definitely want to take a look at the repression essay and we can be a little bit more summary about some of the stuff. I mean, some of the stuff we've surprisingly, we've covered some of it without speaking its name, but um, did you have a passage you wanted to start with? Well, we could maybe start with this idea of a primal repression. Okay. And I can read a little bit about that here. Yeah, please do. We have the reason to assume that there is a primal repression, a first phase of repression, which consists in the psychical, uh, with ideational in parentheses, representative of the instincts being denied entrance into the conscious. Uh, yeah, because this was reminding me that of maybe not this exact one, but like the what is repressed in the symbolic or reappear or what's the repressed in the what real? What is denied entry? Yeah, what is denied entry? I can never remember this quote from. The well, it's, it, I, I know we're we're so used to speaking about repression, but it's precisely it's precisely there that I try to make sure we don't say that word because we're talking about repudiation in the Freudian language or foreclosure in uh, in Lacanian language, right? That gotcha. It, right. That that's that's where we get to psychosis. And uh, anyway, yeah. Start start over with your quote. We have the reason to, or we have reason to assume that there's a primal repression, a first phase of repression, which consists with the physical ideational representative of the instinct being denied entrance into the con into the conscious. With this fixation is established, the representative in question persists unaltered from then onwards, and the instinct remains attached to it. This is due to the properties of unconscious processes, of which we shall speak later. Repression proper, therefore, is actually an after-pressure. Moreover, it is a mistake to emphasize only the repulsion which operates from the direction of the conscious upon what is to be repressed. Quite as important is the attraction exercised by what was primarily repressed upon everything with which it can establish a connection. Probably the trend towards repression would fail in its purpose if these two forces did not cooperate. If there were not something previously repressed ready to receive what is repelled by the conscious. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. But so the first phase, primal repression, is the psychical quote or psychical or as he'll also interchangeably call it the ideational representative of the drive 
being denied entrance into the conscious. So that phase, if we have on one side, the ideational aspect uh, on the other side, we can think about, I think that the, the what's important and, and we can critique this, but what's important is with the primal side, it's this question of, for Freud, he's always thinking about this logic of substitutions, of substitutive formations, mm-hmm. that, that what is repressed doesn't just, it's not just repressed once in one action, as he says, right? It's a continuous activity. And the initial, I mean, like we can think about, you know, one of the big events in late Freudian theory about what's repressed, as we talked about in the narcissism stuff, is um, is this question of incest, right? The incest taboo and, you know, this question of the first loved object denied us is the mother, right? In terms of the, so we have to find these substitutes for her. And as levi Strauss shows, you know, and, and as anti-Oedipus shows that like, if you apply this Freudian logic, it's like, okay, well, the mother's the first denied, you know, access to, and so we go to the mother's sister and the cousin, blah, 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 right? We have this interesting complex inner uh, play of affiliation and alliance. We'll get to that stuff. So you have the uh, the initial repressed of the psychical representative, right, of the drive. And this is where he brings in the notion of fixation, right? This is where he wants to, you know, in, in a kind of Baudry, in a pre-Baudrillardian sense, right, he wants to say, like, there's a model of repression the psychical apparatus kind of churns out these substitutes, these copies that are less and less connected. They're more and more distant from the archetype, right? If you will, right? Because this is a kind of archetypal quasi platonic theory of repression, right? You've got sort of the big form or idea of the repressed and, you know, it, it kind of spins out these, these substitutes. And it's precisely this work of the unconscious that, because the, he wants to say there's this kernel, the primal repression, and then there are these substitutes that are formed, it's precisely that for him, as he's starting to, as he begins to see in his clinical work, that has to be postulated for us to understand how what is repressed, what is primarily repressed, can eventually in this sort of signifying chain, if you will, of substitutes get to the point where the constant censorship of consciousness can allow for what is repressed down the line associatively in these, in these substitutes and these uh, derivatives is another word he uses, right? There are derivatives of the unconscious that can pass the censor and therefore give us finally the tip of the iceberg to work with as material, right? In the analytic situation. Without that, I think for Freud, we would never, through language at least, but even through the body or these other means, we'd never have access to that, to that kernel, to that dark continent of, of primal repression, if that makes sense. And this is why he wants to say there that repression proper is, is an after pressure. And we can see that just in the way that 
we look at dreams and the way that dreams through displacement and condensation and these other means are able to sort of allow the, the primal repressed to have a voice, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's precisely through that that we can even talk about symptom formation and these other things. It's also easily critiquable, I think, from our perspective in a postmodern sense to say that, and Lacan is good on this too, but it's, and Derrida on these others, but it's this interesting thing where it's like, it's postulating this origin of repression that, that Freud holds onto. And this kind of gives him, this kind of puts one of his feet in pre-modernity, if you will, right? Is, is this notion of, a, of an origin that, but obviously for Freud, I think it's inaccessible as origin. So it's, it's already kind of barred, if you will, or got a line through it. So, I mean, he's, yeah, I mean, hopefully some of that makes sense. Because I mentioned here, like in my notes, signifying chains and libidinal cathexis, uh, the instinct instinctual impulse subjected to repression here is a libidinal attitude towards the father coupled with fear of him. After repression, this impulse vanishes out of consciousness. The father does not appear in it as an object of libido. As a substitute for him, we find in a corresponding place some animal which is more or less fitted to the, be the object of anxiety. The formation of the substitute for this ideational portion has come about by displacement along a change of connections, which is determined in a particular way. Yeah, so that's no, I was like, great. ooh, Lacan, uh, signifying um, chains. <laughs> well, yeah, this is, this is great because this, this kind of... I um, kind of built off of, I think, right. what you were saying too. Well, yeah, that, that, and, and this is... This is him describing what he calls anxiety hysteria. Um, we talk about it more clearly just in the general rubric of phobias, right? He's, he's, he's thinking about the formation of, of phobias and what he finds in his cases of phobia most generally is, is the father. This is where I was saying a little bit earlier about hate, admiration, the love, hate, the ambivalence. The father is generally, at least for boys, because um, that's generally what Freud generalizes off of, the father is obviously an object of love. And so far as he is a caregiver, he, in our state of helplessness, he helps to protect us. He's the protector. But at the same time, he's, uh, he's also eventually, once we get old enough, he, okay. is, the, he is that which bars the way towards the the primordial access to the mother and he's the he's the figure of the law and all this all this other stuff if you want to go that route and so you know in this ambivalence in this love changing to hate the outlet is substituting the father right for freud he's trying to understand how is it that the animal comes to be a derivative of a substitute of the father and and take on one of the functions that has such intensity and force that it represents the anxiety, the fear of God that the father puts in us. Right. So for Deleuze and Guattari, they will discuss how this doesn't quite cut it. And, but within the Freudian, you know, respect, it makes sense because for him, as I said, the fear of God, I didn't say that just like, you know, uh, by chance, you know, God as the representative of the law is also kind of a, you know, if we take Schreber, right, the fleshig being one of the, the paranoid 
persecutors, uh, God also stands in for that too, right? So, but when, when Freud hears the word God, he thinks father, right? And so that object of fear, the fact that it takes the shape or the, or the substitute is generally animals, because we know that can't even list all the phobias. We have all kinds of fun words for them, like triskaidekaphobia, right? Which is a great spelling word uh, in terms of spelling bees, but like the fear of the number 13, that's not an animal. But what Freud finds in general with, with a lot of these phobias is it keeps coming back to uh, an animal, um, you know, being the, you know, um, being the form taken. And, you know, with little Hans, it's the horse. The horse is supposed to be the father and the horse has a big penis just like the father has a, you know, when we're little has a big penis. And, you know, so you got this whole question of castration, this whole question of inferiority, yada, 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 all of that's like kind of balled up together. And little Hans's fear of the horse. You know, if you remember in Machine Your Conscious, Quattro even makes this whole diagram yeah, yeah. to kind of show the molar molecular aspects of, right. of little Hans's fear. And one of, one of which is even Freud's face, right is in the diagram as this kind of paternalistic severe face i mean in in like <laughs> film we we can think of all the different ways in which like the freudian face is <laughs> freud's face has this function both of the repressive superego instance but also like in i always try to think of the freud of bill and ted as <laughs> as, as being ridiculed right. right standing there with this corn dog and trying to be a part of 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 socrates and billy the kid picking up girls right and he's he's the fucking nerd he's he's scaring the hose man (laughs) so yes this question i think for freud it's he keeps seeing how is it the father puts out all these derivatives and then it ends up in an animal that's the other terminus of the of the chain you know going from father to horse or father to dog or whatever the case may be and I think that's where Lacan is innovative in that sense is really running with that model of the of language, et cetera, that, you know, like we mentioned, Freud gets to a, a bit here, but he doesn't really flesh it out super well. But No, not, not in the sense in which, you know, perhaps Lacan would say right. that even though Freud is thinking through the question of the signifier, what really Freud needed was I mean with castration in particular right, right? like that's yes. the big entry entrance into the symbolic yeah I think for 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 Lacan it took Saussure and these other linguists in terms of structuralism right. to really yeah go uh this Flesh logic out, yeah. but but we know that Freud's a cunning linguist and uh <laughs> you know uh, he is thinking about how language is mobilizes these derivatives and these substitutes so I don't remember if this was in repression or negation, but there was something about just, I mean, it's kind of a seemingly banal point, but still relevant. I think to the discussion is what is repression is the whole mechanism being, or like the whole mode of operation to, you know, this is something that I want to keep out of the conscious, out of consciousness. Or, right. Or the conscious. Yes. One of the ways that Freud first, you know, in his most famous work, The Interpretation of Dreams, one of the, if we think about what he wants to say is that as we fall asleep, we kind of lull consciousness and uh, we, we draw back in 
those repressive cathexes a little bit back onto the ego. And one of the ways in which the wish functions in the dream is to um, that one of the primal wishes, one of the, that's part of any wish is the wish to, to stay asleep, right? The wish to keep sleeping. That's what the dream, that's one of the functions of the dream, right? That it's, it's to keep us sleeping. And, but it's interesting that it's able to work with the derivatives of the substitutes of the primarily repressed and displace it, condense it and, and sort of mold it in a form that could trick the sensor and allow that to stream out in what we understand, uh, you know, perceptually, visually, auditorily. And, and behind that is behind the wish to sleep is also this, these, these other impulses that are wished for, you know, whether it be killing the father and taking his place so we can fuck the mother, blah, blah, blah. Right. I mean, like, however, however you want to work with it, you know, it's not always necessarily that, but it generally has a sexual character to it. I think that's the important thing for, as you describe it, you know, repression, keeping the repressed away from consciousness is also a means by which to keep the pressure of drives at a minimum, because what happens when the repressed does sort of violate and break through the sensor, um, what, what, what happens, right? We get an increase in anxiety and stress. We get, we get that fight or flight adrenaline mode, right? And we can't, we can't flee from it. And the best we can do is fight it with, you know, through these ul- ulterior means of repression. So it is a kind of, we can call it defense mechanism of the ego, whatever. It's, it's, it's meant to protect us, right, in that way from unpleasure in the, in the most basic sense, right? Oh, I was actually conflating it. So it's negation to negate something in a judgment is at bottom to say this is something which I prefer to, re- I should prefer to repress, not repression. A negative judgment is the intellectual substitute for repression. It's no is the hallmark of repression, a certificate of origin, like let us say, made in Germany, which you mentioned that quote earlier, actually. Yeah, made in Germany is 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 in English here. And this gets back to, as I said, Freud's a cunning linguist. That's the fascinating thing, is he says negation allows the negative judgment as the intellectual substitute for repression. It does allow for the first bit of lifting of repression, right? It doesn't deal with it and doesn't get get rid of it, but but it allows to kind of stamp it with it registers it right as this is repressed right but in that registration it's able it's it's able to to come into consciousness right i think that that's what's important and this is good that we're actually doing both at the same time because i do think that the repression essay and the negation essay are intimately linked even if they're 10 years apart this is why i think for freud negation is so important in the analytic situation is because it's one of the means by which the repressed can be symbolized, can be, it's not the only way, but it's one of the ways that it can be verbalized. And he will come back to this in analysis, terminable and interminable, and maybe another essay. I'm trying to remember. He does get the critique specifically with respect to this essay, where it's like, if I say, no, that's not what I thought, or no, that's not what I wanted, 
the analyst is always going to use that against me and say, aha, that's, that's what he wanted. That's what he desired. And so it's, I think he even phrases it. I love this because I, I love that he, even this early is using this kind of language where he's, where it's for the analyst, you know, it's, or what the patient thinks then is, well, it's heads uh, or heads. I lose tails. You win. Right. right. Like, you're in this double bind kind of, and Freud talks more. He doesn't address that this here because here he seems very confident. Like when the patient says, no, that's the furthest thing from my mind. He even says it's, he even says, you know, think, think if you're an analyst and you're, you're, you're doing the talking cure and you're trying to get the, the patient to just say what comes off the top of their head, right? No, don't repress. Don't, don't judge. Don't condemn yourself. Just free flow, free association, and say you're the analyst and you just go, what would you think, you know, would be the furthest thing from your mind? The most unthinkable thing, just say it. And he describes it as laying a trap. So if you think about it, I mean, that's, that's something that's constantly demanded. That's the one, that's the fundamental rule of the analytic situation in, in the Freudian clinic is like, is, is don't think, right? Don't think, just speak. And that gets us back to Lacan's parletra or this question of the speaking being, right? Where thinking and being are not necessarily conjoined in free association. You're not supposed to think and judge and then speak. You're supposed to just bleh, right? Let you're it fly. Just, you're supposed to let it fly. Just like, just like I do with posting. Well, <laughs> this, is how, this is another way of- Or at least mostly. This, this is another way of fooling the sensor though. Right, because the sensor is precisely thinking and radiocinating and choosing and deciding one's words carefully, and and that's something that we're taught as socialized beings. Right, we we are taught to judge our words carefully and choose our words carefully so that we can fit in or be allowed in polite society and not fucking <laughs> exiled and and all of this stuff. So free association as a demand from the analyst is not something that's an easy mode just to slip into. It, yeah. it does take a kind of, I don't know if training's the word, right? But it does take a, it does take a, it's a question of disinhibiting, right? Mm -hmm. um, which right. is not always, it's not easy. I like this bit here where he talks about how the ego periodically sends out small amounts of cathexis into the perceptual system by means of which it samples the external stimuli, and then after each such tentative advance, it draws back again. I thought that was interesting that there's not a passive, there's an act, active seeking out of the right. stimuli by the ego and the perceptual system. Right. Like looking for things to libidinally invest in, I presume. Mm -hmm. It's similar to his one of his metaphors that he likes to use we saw him use it in on narcissism his notion of the little primordial amoeba that's that sticks right, yeah, out yeah, a little exactly. pseudopod yeah and and samples the external world you know i think for him there is this question of the perceptual system as this opening out and the ego of the id he has this very interesting little diagram it's almost like shaped like a bottle, right? And he's got the different, he's got the topographical description of where the ego is and it's plugged into the in blah, blah, blah. But you know, it's, it's like a bottle that's kind of got a, got a little cap on it that yeah. 
It's like a is. water. It's like one of those rubber water bottles, or like right, a, or like a, like a water skin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like a uh, even like a whoopee cushion, almost. It's there you go. Quite sort of a lot, but that same kind of pink rubber rematerial. Right. So the ego feeling out through the perceptual system onto the world, putting out its little feelers. Yeah, it is this. It is what we discussed in on narcissism. It's very clearly this notion that of this flow and uh, and the rhythm of transforming ego libido into object libido, feeling out in the external world and then re- withdrawing back in. And that's really important. That's one of the fundamental insights Freud has in understanding Schreber's psychosis or a psychosis in general, which is all this object libido suddenly comes just flooding back to the ego. And that, has consequences for the perceptual relationship to the external world, right? You know, there's this critical threshold that's crossed and it takes work, it takes years, time, and who knows what for the schizophrenic or the psychotic or the paraphrenic, as he calls it, to begin to put that object libido back out. And a part of that is, is the external world is radically changed because of that. Lacan makes a lot about this notion in the negation essay about the correlation between memory and perception, the question of presentation and representation, as you will, right? As he says here, the antithesis between subjective and objective does not exist from the first. As he says right above that, thus originally the mere existence of a presentation was a guarantee of the reality of what was presented. The antithesis between subjective and objective is not exist from the first. It only comes into being from the fact that thinking possesses the capacity to bring before the mind once more something that has once been perceived by reproducing it as a presentation without the external object having to still be there. That's kind of how memory works and representation works. The first and immediate aim, therefore, of reality testing is not to find an object in real perception which corresponds to the one presented, but to refine such an object, to convince oneself that it is still there. Lacan makes a lot about this part of the negation essay. I think for, for him, it might be the most important part, which is precisely the question of the reality principle, the question of reality testing, you know, which gets us back to the little amoeba and the pseudopod or the little tendrils that come out from the ego through perception. It's not about finding an object to correspond. It's about refining it. Right. Finding to refine really such again. an object to convince oneself it's still there. Does that have any relation to drive or the thing for Freud? Or well, is that just a coincidence in terms of this law? Because I don't know, it just kind of made me wonder if convince oneself that it's still there? Like, is this some sort of lost object that he's discussing or is this just something totally different? Yeah, I mean, for Lacan, the, what is it? You know, castration is precisely giving up what we didn't know we had always already lost, right? It's something similar, right? That, and this this gets us to objet and the cause of desire, right? The lost object, I mean, we think about desire is precisely, and this is, both Hegelian and Freudian and Lacanian desire is precisely the desire to desire. Right? I mean, that sounds tautological, but you desire isn't filled by, you know, by objects, um, but well, exactly. It's, you know, once we get that object that doesn't 
quench desire unless we're fucking dead, right? It right. It may it may satisfy drives as we've mm-hmm. discussed. The um, which is why drive and desire are even if they are related, related they, cousins, they are not like, yeah, 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 they they are not fundamentally the second same. cousins, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So I always so, did have a get a confused confused in like trying to explain Lacanian death drive versus just straight up how his lack and desire function. But that's right. another that's another story. Right. Yeah. I mean, we've we will definitely come back to death drive. I uh, when we get um, in, in Antiochus, we'll, we'll definitely come face to face with it again. You know, I guess I would just sort of end the stuff about what we just said about the object. You know, it's your question earlier. I mean, it's, I think it's a question of this gets us back to what we talked about a little bit with fixation, you know, as, as Deleuze and Guattari will say, contra Freud and even Lacan, there is no fixed object. There's only a fixed subject through repression. Mm-hmm. The object is, you know, as Freud says, it's, it's arbitrary as pertains to the drive. It's really fixation. We, we should talk about it more in terms of the ego's proclivities. And, and it's about this kind of expediency for satisfying the drive, right? So refining the object, the lost object, as you, as you said, there are also this question of, of derivatives and substitutes for that object, right? And if we talk about, if we think about fetishism, you know, as Freud says, one of the things about fetishism that's what's great about the fetish is precisely that it does procure sur- surplus jouissance, right? It, it, it itself is a little bit of surplus enjoyment. And, and what's nice about the fetish is that uh, it helps us to, you know, in this little dose of perversion, it's, it's always going to uh, satisfy that, that se- those, those sexual impulses, the, the sexual drive. It's, it's, it's a good go-to, you know, it is refining that lost object, whether it be a locket of hair or a foot or, you know, that's where I think the Freudian logic of objet can be interesting, uh, you know, in his essay on fetishism. And it also gets us really talking about the intensity and the life of fantasy, right? If structuring fantasy, if you will. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you wanted to cover or think we should we kind of exhausted my my takes yeah um, gosh you know i i know we could talk about all kinds of other things you know i i will reiterate your point that you made earlier and here's the great quote where he says repression in fact interferes only with the relation of the instinctual representative to one psychical system namely to that of the conscious i think that's that's important you know to note and you know, he, he uses the metaphor in his, his little note on the mystic writing pad, right? I think we've talked about it before, but he, he thinks about the unconscious as this clay slab, right? And it's got, a, it's, got a little, it's got a sheet on top of it, and you can kind of scribble. If you pull the sheet off, it's, you can start over. You know, the, the conscious system would, would be like that sheet, right? It's, uh, you write on it, but, but it's stored, it's registered, you know, the memory traces are registered in, in the unconscious, which I think for Freud is both atemporal and sort of immortal, right? It, I think for Freud, in terms of the unconscious, there is no such thing as uh, memory loss, right? It's like always stored there. 
my consciousness is like a little little sheet that once we we lift it off, we get a we get a tabula rasa each time. This is why I was saying earlier that um, memory traces, memory and uh, and perception can't coincide for Freud. Now, obviously, we think if we look at a thinker like Deleuze or like Bergson, they they complicate this kind of thing because they are thinking about temporality, duration, etc. I mean, even when you were talking earlier about how the we were talking about vision, how the you know, if, if we think of the, the eyes or the visual apparatus similar to a ca- camera, we do know blinking has this function of, of like shuddering, right? I mean, you could speak more to this, I think, better than I could in terms of your interest in photography and, and film. But keeping the eye, you know, not blinking, we do start to see, you can call it hallucination, but you do start to see the superpositions of the visual data begin to blur together right and mm-hmm. it's kind of like a what a long exposure on a on an aperture or whatever i think one of the, the one of the things about these three essays i think that what the goal was not only to build off the narcissism essay and point towards anti-edipus but start to get just start to familiarize ourselves with some of these some of these concepts, some of this language, some of this turn of phrase. And, you know, as we go forward, we'll, we'll try to, we'll try to recall some of the stuff and, and stay equipped with some, right. some tools to uh, not only, again, not only to, to make sense of the Freudian critique of the critique of Oedipus in Oedipus, in but also it'll, it'll, it'll serve us well, I think, as we start going through these case histories, as we start doing the rat man, the wolf man, We've already done Schreber. As we tackle those, I think we'll be in a good position to work through chapter two, which we may want to break up into two parts. We'll have to see, but yeah, but it'll, we'll it'll, reading it'll, it'll it'll get us equipped. And um, almost any thinker, unless we're going like you know back to like Schopenhauer or, or some you know someone in that era or previous, is going to be drawing on Freud, specifically Lacan, right? Like I think. You know, as we do more coverage of his seminars, too, like that work will uh, also pay dividends. Oh yeah, oh, oh yeah, I, I I do think you're right, and but yeah, Leotard as well. Leotard, yeah, as Leotard. Well. I mean, even if we look at Marcuse, so many people are drawing from Freud. Yeah, and honestly, I mean, reading Freud and going back to Schopenhauer, it's it, it'd be interesting to compare Schopenhauer's will to live. Uh, will to life versus drive yeah yeah versus the aristanatos stuff um versus will to power and nietzsche right i mean all these it, it is it is a nice freud is a, is a nice one of the focal points really yeah. of we've talked about why anti-oedipus and, and leotard aren't merely rehashing a a kind of Freudo marxism that was beginning to be in vogue in um you know in, in french thinking and we'll have to keep that kind of stuff in mind as as we move forward that'll wrap us up for the week this will be cooper cherry and taylor atkins of the machinic unconscious happy hour signing off the very rules of eating of negativity and singularity